Russians abroad are the new unvaccinated. Everything is allowed, e.g. instant dismissal, like this conductor of the Rotterdam Philharmonic, after decades of loyal service. Unbelievable. What can this man do about what is happening now? Hi listeners, welcome to the inoculation. My name is Eva Van Chaper. My name is Daiva Repeskaita. Hi Daiva, uh, who did we just hear comparing Russian expats to the unvaccinated? This was a translation of a tweet by Thierry Baudet. He's a member of the Dutch parliament and he's known for speaking against solidarity with Ukraine amid Russia's invasion and against COVID vaccines. He was talking about Valery Gergiev, a Russian conductor who lost a number of engagements in the past few weeks due to his pro-Russian stance. Oh yeah, and, and uh, he also lost one in Munich where I live. So yeah, he was, uh, let's just say, kicked out a number of places. Anyway, the tweet we just heard was just one of the tweets that stood out in our most recent analysis. So we have been looking at European politicians' use of anti-vaccine, anti-mask positions uh, to expand their own political following. Um, this is a tactic that we see even before the corona pandemic with, for example, the Italian five-star movement using measles vaccinations as a so-called wedge issue. But this week we asked ourselves if there might be a link between tweeters who tweet about anti-vax, anti-mask views and those uh, who tweet about pro-Russian stance. Can we actually call someone like Baudet anti-vax? Well, I think in this case, we really can. Just listen to these other tweets. Unapproved side effects of their experimental gene therapeutic immunotherapy, sale of the hashtag Corona Deception. When we started looking at right-wing politicians such as Portugal's Andre Ventura, um, we found them tweeting and also retweeting anti-mask, anti-vax, anti-mandate talking points at a much higher rate than politicians who were aligned with moderate or left of center positions. And they were getting retweeted by others. That's exactly right. So for this episode, we wanted to analyze the situation in the Netherlands. Right. So first we identified uh, politicians who tweeted most about vaccines and mandates. And what did we find out? So the most prolific tweeter was the leader of a small far-right party, and, surprise, surprise, this is uh, Thierry Baudet. Oh, our friend from before. Um, and the politicians getting the most engagement are mostly members of right-wing parties, completely overshadowing the ruling parties. So, actually, from what we've seen in our other analysis, this was not a huge surprise. Not really, exactly. After France and Portugal, it's not. So, tell me a bit more about who Thierry Baudet is. So, there are several... Um, parties that are considered far-right in the Netherlands. And probably the most famous one is the PVV. And uh, many people who follow European news will have heard of Gert Wilders. Exactly. But then there's also two more radical parties. Um, one is called JA21, and the other is uh, Thierry Baudet's FVD. And this one, uh, the last one, is the only party that, according to an article uh, by uh, a governance professor, Kuhn Damheis, is the only party that campaigned against lockdown 
and used anti-vaccination rhetoric. So when the Dutch election happened uh, last year, many articles were focusing on the fact that uh, uh, the most famous far-right party lost votes. But actually, as we see in the article, and we will pop it in the show notes, the right-wing populist uh, parties overall, if you sum them up, increased their share. And the Dutch far-right has more seats than before. I think the big question was, well, why would Terry Baudet, why would he then start tweeting about Russia? How did we find out he was doing that? Let's just hear the tweet again. Russians abroad are the new unvaccinated. Everything is allowed, e.g. instant dismissal, like this conductor of the Rotterdam Philharmonic, after decades of loyal service. Unbelievable. What can this man do about what is happening now? This is such a strange link that suddenly the reference point um, that he uses is the unvaccinated residents. Exactly. And this is something that we've seen with the anti-COVID protesters in Germany and all over the world, and I think also in parts of the United States, that we have people comparing uh, the unvaccinated to, you know, to Jews under the Nazi regime who were uh, somebody who has, has been described as a group that were at risk of losing their freedom. But this is to have this linked to somebody who has pro-Russian views is this is the first time I've seen this happening. Yeah, we see it in different countries. I mean, people around the world went in to protest against vaccine mandates wearing yellow stars. And this also happened in Lithuania, which is not exactly a champion when it comes to Holocaust memory. And these people who did that, they're um, definitely not champions in in that regard, suddenly they care very much about uh, human rights and the rights of those who make certain policy decisions. Now what we're seeing is that uh, they are extending this to those who oppose the European political consensus of supporting Ukraine and its government in this conflict. That's very interesting. So how did you even go about finding an overlap between anti-vax tweets and pro-Russian tweets. We used a custom Twitter scraper, just like with the other uh, data sets. We uh, ran a code that identified all mentions of certain keywords, and then we mapped them onto a date axis, and we saw um, so, for example, since the beginning of, of the war, the far-right politicians that uh, we started following were still tweeting more about vaccines than about Russia's invasion in Ukraine. But we can see that uh, they are reacting to the news and the conversations. So they are using the hashtags that are in the news. And, and we see this uh, shift slowly happening, that they're talking about about these international news. Okay, so this is interesting. And it does also seem to line up with what the Swedish reporter Malin Olofsson told us about anti-vax positions being a gateway to more radical positions, right? Eva, I think we need to remind our listeners who Malin is. Yeah, you're right. Well, she's a Swedish reporter who was undercover, I think, for over a year with an anti-vax group. And I think we're going to put the link to our episode with her in the show notes as well. Exactly. And this is what she told us. 
as we saw in the investigation we did was like how um, this um, Finnish Swedish person how she was actually pulling people into other kind of conspiracy theories through the anti-vaccine questions and those questions and also the bank systems and 5G and all those things that we're quite familiar with today because of the anti-vaccine movement uh, due to the pandemic, she was already back then also into, she said, if I only open one door to the parents, they will slowly open so many other doors and get this other information. I feel like she's not telling this to everyone, her way of looking at the Holocaust, for example. So for us, it was important to show who she is to all these parents listening to her. So they should be a little bit critical because she doesn't believe in any science. Is there any way that we can understand why a politician would embrace both anti-vax positions and a pro-Russian stance? Well, to understand this pattern, I talked to Erin Jenny a few weeks ago, and she told me that right-wing movements congregate around a certain type of leader. My name is Erin Jenny, and I'm a professor of international relations at Central European University, which is currently in Vienna, Austria. And my work very broadly concerns the topics of nationalism, populism, foreign policy analysis, and I also have done work on ethnic politics and secessionism in, in my previous work. Could you uh, tell a bit about uh, what kind of pandemic policies ethno-populists support? Okay, so first of all, I just want to talk a little bit about this concept because it's close to right-wing populism, but it's a specific type of combination of populist, pro-the-people, anti-elite rhetoric combined with this kind of nationalist othering, right? This the separation of the in-group from these out-groups like migrants or you know foreign hostile nations. And so I, you know, I've been looking at this um, type of rhetoric together with my colleagues in our comparative populism project. Okay, and so how does Putin figure in? You also have hegemonic masculinities and authoritarianism, social conservatism, all kind of, you know, um, wrapped together into this kind of very, very small understanding of what the in-group is. But I think what this concept tells us is that there is this, um, you know, attraction to this model of social control, let's say, or social order, in which you have these alpha males, right, that are uh, that are basically dominant above these beta males and other. So you have this kind of hierarchy of, of masculinities and types of men. And then on the other side, you also have this subjugation, let's say, of women and children. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a concept of social order and it implies certain performances, right? So if so one would expect if you have this preference for hegemonic masculinity that you would support leaders who would display these you know, dramatic, athletic feats, such as, you know, I'm impervious to the virus, or I just need to take a couple shots. This is something that um, Lukashenko said, just take some vodka, or Boris Johnson, you know, also was kind of very dismissive, right? And so you're sure this appeals to people? Erin says that crisis situations create a fertile soil for this type of politicians. 
in these crisis situations, such as the pandemic, because we live in the age of nationalism, we're looking to our nations, right? And we deputize the national governments, you know, to represent the interests of the nations to provide protection in cases of extreme national emergency. We even call it national emergency, national crisis, national epidemic, national protection. So this is how we think about you know, societies bordered nation states, right? And uh, in some cases, so that's why we've seen this reaction really across the board to the pandemic in the early days of just shutting down borders. You know, even though the WHO has specifically recommended against this because it doesn't do that much to slow the spread of the virus while imposing extreme economic harm, still the leaders, national leaders, feel the pressure by constituents to be seen to be doing something. And this is the borders or the, how they kind of provide this protection, right? But in specific types of cases, right, you see this emergence of this nationalist populist hybrid blend that I call ethnopopulism, in which this national protection is combined with this kind of go-to-the-people, anti-elite kind of rhetoric where we think of ourselves as this very core kind of group, right? This ethno-political group, not just the national in-group, but also the political in-group. And we see threats coming from elites, and then we also see them coming from the national others. And in extreme kind of conspiracy-minded ethno-populist discourse, you know, there's these conspiracies. We see this with the pandemic, right? This very commonly known um, conspiracy that, you know, scientists, you know, Bill Gates in some versions are cooperating with, you know, um, foreign nations like China to bring down, you know, the core, uh, the core people, the American people, for example, or, you know, the Hungarians or, you know, whatever, wherever this type of discourse is, is employed. You see this type of discourse also among, you know, far right um, leaders. And so what connects all of this is conspiracy thinking. Is that right? This is what we're finding both in the hardcore anti-vax influences and the soft anti-mandate rhetoric, you know, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but types. To find out more about right-wing conspiratorial thinking, I called researcher Esther Senesh. My name is um, Dr. Esther Senesh. I'm a Mary Sklodowska Curie Actions Research Fellow at the Peace and War Center at Norwich University in the United States and also at the Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology at Central European University in Vienna, Austria. I'm at the United States on a two-year secondment for, uh, for this um, project that is funded by the European Commission. And essentially, I study far-right radicalization strategies and uh, disinformation campaigns, mostly looking at online uh, websites, far-right and white supremacist materials. I asked her how she decided to research far-right movements. Yeah, um, I think it, it was a bit personal as well. I was re- uh, born and raised in Hungary, and in 2017, or around that time, um, I noticed that the Hungarian government started this attack against Central European University. You know, I started seeing the circulation of anti-Semitic discourses, linked to this university. So it was founded by George Soros after the American-Hungarian um, philanthropic um, billionaire 
who created this university after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, rev- the revolutions of 1989 to sort of, you know, um, enhance democracy in the region of Eastern and Central Europe. And the Hungarian government started shifting more and more to the far right. And so they linked the person of George Soros to a very old anti-Semitic conspiracy theory by which they claim that um, George Soros is responsible for flooding Europe with immigrants and essentially replacing white Europeans with immigrants and invaders. Esther also talked about how the internet is changing conspiracy theories. Yeah, and what I think is so interesting about this is this is exactly what we're seeing in our research. So these movements are becoming more and more transnational. It's difficult to think in terms of national borders because of the internet. So the internet has contributed very much to the spread and the amplification of these um, messages. And in terms of time, I mean, you know, I, I try to always look at current trends, but then I compare it to more um, long-term trends in the past. And of course, you know, we have to look at the historical origins of some of these ideas, where they come from. So I often make references to Nazi Germany, where, you know, uh, some ideas originated from also in terms of eco-fascism, for example, or in the United States, for example, we can go back all the way to the eugenics movement. And did she also tell you what the COVID pandemic means for far-right movements? Yes, it seems to be benefiting them overall. It became very clear during especially the COVID-19 pandemic what unites these far-right and and white supremacist movements around the globe. So they weaponized the pandemic in order to recycle old conspiracy theories, such as, for example, the New World Order, global Zionism, and then the Great Replacement. So the New World Order it's a very old conspiracy theory, according to which there's a secret world government that is controlled by an international Jewish elite or cabal that aims to destroy local cultures by um, inventing multiculturalism and flooding white nation states with immigrants and refugees. Are these European far-right movements paralleled in the United States? Is there something similar happening? I'm not sure yet. But I've noticed that in Europe, it seems that we've been importing American style, this extreme kind of libertarian uh, ideology that stems often from anti-government groups. So you've seen that in the Netherlands, more and more in Hungary, for example. And I think definitely the, the unifying point is don't take away our freedom of choice. Let us decide if you want vaccinated or want to be vaccinated or not, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think that's, that's why. And we do find what Esther calls extreme libertarianism in the Netherlands, right? Because last year when we started looking at this country, we found a number of protests against restrictions. And uh, the government was seesawing between strict lockdowns, uh, complete removal of restrictions, and so on and so forth. And just remember Thierry Baudet, our um, pro-Russia Twitter. Yes, exactly. The argument of unlimited individual liberty will return now that the Dutch government is planning 
to lift the remaining COVID restrictions. And some people say that uh, they're hurrying too much. Uh, Daiva, what do you mean by that? I mean that it seems that political debates are circling around consumer uh, freedom and politicians are scrambling to show how much they care about the economy, not only about public health. Okay, got it. So the pandemic situation kind of allows mainstream parties to do away with restrictions. So far-right's arguments about limited consumer freedom are becoming obsolete. But let's not forget what we heard from Malin, the Swedish reporter, and our other interviews. The far-right now has a rich repertoire of conspiracies to pull out of their sleeves. So what you're saying is that now that there's a receptive audience, these same players will twist other facts to suit their agendas? Yes, we are beginning to see it in our data set, but soon you will hear what we found in Europe's largest countries. Okay, so that was this week's episode. I guess it's a wrap. Thanks for listening. And before we leave, I just wanted to remind you that everything we talked about and links to our script will be added to our website so that you can find them if you want to take a look for yourself. We'll also add a transcript um, for those of you who prefer to read what's in the podcast than to listen. If you want to hear more stories about vaccine hesitancy, you can look up the inoculation wherever you'd like to listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, Inoculated. You can find the link in our show notes. This investigation was supported by IG4EU. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And let us know what you think about this episode. Bye for now. Bye.